0: 17, as I just was able to sing about how that, you know, many times we sing about the angels at Christmas, but you know, as they announce the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have even a greater reason to sing and to praise Him, because Jesus didn't come to this earth to die for angels, He came to die for you and me. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to open the Word of God this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this book of Matthew that we've been studying and the great lessons that we can learn. And we pray, Lord, again, that you'll bless our time together. Help me to uh, give forth the Word of God as uh, you've given it to us here. We pray, Lord, your blessing upon our time. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we want to look at Matthew 17, beginning in verse 10. Talk about the complete dependency on Christ. Complete dependency on Christ. That's easy to say, but hard to do. Easy to say, but hard to do. Now last week... In our study, it took us to a most remarkable event where Jesus had taken his three closest apostles and I thought, you know, I I bet you can't even see anything I'm putting up there. Technology is wonderful. When it works. Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John three closest disciples, led them up onto a high mountain. It was there that the transfiguration occurred, and He gave these three apostles a glimpse of His divine glory. He allowed them, as it were, to preview the majesty with which He would one day return to this earth and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we're told that His face did shine as the sun, and His raiment was white as the light. Back in verse 2, we're told that the two great representative figures of the Old Testament appeared and spoke with him about the death that he would soon accomplish on the cross. Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets. We're told that a cloud of glory covered the three trembling disciples And that the voice of the heavenly Father spoke to them, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And then when it was all over, after the cloud had lifted away, were told that he came to them and touched them and told them, Arise, be not afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. And so this story isn't meant to be just a mere legend. It's meant to be accepted by us as an actual historic event. Something that truly happened on this earth in real time, space, in real human experience. And that's how the Apostle Peter treated it. He was an eyewitness to it. He urged us to believe it wholeheartedly. And near the end of his life, just before he was put to death for his faith, He wrote to other persecuted believers and he encouraged them by basically saying that this was a glorious event, but we have a more sure word of prophecy and we would do well to take heed to it. And now the truth of taking heed or listening to Christ is illustrated by what happened on the way down the mountain. By the way, in my mountain climbing days, As a young man, I did climb a few mountains. They weren't very high mountains. But being from Kansas, a flatlander, it was amazing to go to Colorado and to do a little mountain climbing and some rappelling as well. I still think that would be great to do again. You have to get a big, strong rope to do that. But I always found it was a lot easier to climb the mountain or climb the cliff or whatever you were doing than it was to come down. Because you can always see where you're kind of looking for, you know? But when you're starting to come down, you can't. your, your eye, uh, feet don't have eyes, and so you can't see those footholds and those handholds and so forth. Coming down the mountain can be sometimes a little bit rough. And so it's interesting here, as these men came down, and I don't know that they were coming down a sheer cliff or anything, it was just coming down off of this mountain. But I think two aspects of the Lord's explanation to the disciples. First, Jesus explained that what they had witnessed could not be told until His resurrection. The Bible tells us uh, Jesus commanded them, Tell the vision to no man, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And then Peter, James, and John would be be witnesses of Christ's glory to others. They would tell of the transfiguration, but to tell it earlier would have been costly. Perhaps a riot would surely have come about by well-meaning but wrong-headed people that would seek to immediately crown Christ as the earthly king. And they would have stood, would have stood in the way of the cross. And so Jesus says, be silent until after the resurrection. Now this is brought on the question in verse 10. Verse 10, notice it there. Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? They had witnessed Christ in messianic glory so they could... How could they match this with the opinions of the day? And Jesus explained that the scribal scribal literalism, these teachers of Israel, had failed to see Elijah, had come already in John the Baptist. Verse 11, it says, "...Elias truly shall first come and restore all things, but I say unto you that Elias is come already." And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. In other words, Scripture is true, yet it must be properly interpreted rather than popularly understood. I think that's very true in our day today. The Scripture must be properly interpreted instead of just popularly understood. You know, there's a lot of popular opinion about what the Bible says, but it may not be absolutely correct. It may not be properly interpreted. John did his work and pointed everything to Christ as the Lamb of God. And that is precisely why we even joined together at the Lord's table to remember the Lamb of God, Christ, dying for us that we might share His glory. As it is so often true, the mountaintop experiences that we have, we eventually have to come down to the world below, and so they did, only to find a large crowd in bewilderment and other, the other nine disciples. And some would say that our text shows that Jesus would become frustrated with his disciples. I contend that the Lord was never frustrated. Was the Lord disappointed? Was the Lord upset sometimes or angry? I think we find evidence for that, but I don't think anything ever frustrates or confuses or upsets the Lord as we see it in our, through our human eyes. Yes, Jesus overturned the tables of money changers in the temple. He was grieved because of the hardness of the hearts who criticized him for healing a man with a withered hand. And when speaking to Peter, he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. And here you will see he calls his disciples a faithless and perverse nation. But I don't see frustration here or anger in the sense that we think of it. But I see the God of heaven just calling it as it is. Now let's look at the text that we have here, verses 14 through 21. It says, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and off into the water, and I brought him to thy disciples... And they could not cure him. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. And they then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible unto you, howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. I think to truly appreciate this passage and its lessons for us, I need to let you know that in the Greek language, and again, I don't claim to be a Greek scholar, but even us poor Greek students cannot, uh, can sometimes find the meaning to words. And this particular word, and I just share it with you in the Greek because of, of its uh, meaning and what other words we are more familiar with. He used the Greek word dunamai dunamai, we get our English word uh, dynamic. And from the noun dunamis, we get the word dynamite. And so the word dunamai means to be able, in a sense of possessing the ability to do something or to accomplish something. And you find the first occurrence of it there in verse 15, when the father brought his need to Jesus, complaining that the disciples could not cure his son. That's the word dunamai. The man uses his, this word, literally says the disciples were not able to heal his son. The second occurrence is found when Jesus, after Jesus healed the boy, the disciples had come to him privately and verse 19, and asked why they could not cast out the demon. And they used the form of the same word, saying, why could we not cast him out? And then the third time it's used is after the Lord explained to them that it was because of their lack of faith. And after He urged them that they would accomplish a great deal if they only had but a small faith in him, he told them in verse 20, nothing shall be impossible unto you. He used the very same word and literally told them nothing would be not able to be done by you. And so there's a theme here that runs through this passage, that of ability, the ability or the lack of ability to do something. And the thing that made the difference in this story, the very, the turning point in ability, if you will, was when they obeyed the command of Jesus when he said, bring him to me. In other words, so long as the disciples sought to do something of the work of Jesus apart from a dependent faith in Jesus, they were unable to accomplish anything. But as soon as they brought the matter to Jesus himself, things began to happen. Now that's a tremendous important spiritual principle. And there's a story in the book of Acts that illustrates it. After Jesus had ascended to the Father in heaven and after he had called Paul into the apostolic ministry, we're told that, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Acts 19 and verse 11. We're told that so that from his body were brought into the sick handkerchiefs and aprons and the diseases departed from them, and evil spirits went out from them. Verse 12. By the way, faith healers have perverted this passage of Scripture. So don't think that you can take your hanky and hold it up to the TV and things going to get healed. Okay? Or apron or whatever you might have. Apparently the dramatic miracles that God performed through His servant Paul, drew the attention of some who wanted to get into the action. And that's true of faith healers today as well. But the problem is that they sought to do it apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. And that has disastrous results. And we read in verses 13 through 16 that these Jewish exorcists, exorcists, sought to use Jesus' name and authority. They sought to make use of Jesus in order to do the work of Jesus without any dependent relationship by faith with Jesus. And that's something that simply cannot be done. It always leads to frustration. Yes, we get frustrated. I don't think God does, but we get frustrated and we become helpless. And it leads to people running away from us, overpowered, naked, and wounded. How often do we do this very same thing that we read about here? How often do we try to use Jesus' authority and power for our own, on our own initiative? How often do we act as if we have power and authority of Jesus and we try to use it apart from Him? How often do we try to do the work for Jesus without a personal dependent? Faith in Jesus. Jesus once gave us some very specific instructions concerning this. He said in John 15, verse 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Think of what Jesus said. Can you accomplish something for Jesus apart from abiding in Him? Well, yeah, you can. Jesus even had a name for it. You know what it was? Nothing. Many of us try to serve Jesus without dependent faith in Him. And we succeed in accomplishing just that. Nothing. But by contrast, the Apostle Paul once testified now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power, that's the word dunamis again, the power that worketh in us. He once affirmed that his own experience, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's the word Endumu, or empower, comes from that same root word, dunamai, or dunamis. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now I believe this is the great lesson this passage has for us uh, this morning. Just as the disciples discovered as followers of Jesus, they were unable to do anything for Jesus apart from being utterly dependent upon Jesus or have a dependent faith in Jesus. So let's look at this passage a little closer and see the crucial spiritual principles here that are taught to us. Notice, first of all, the helplessness, uh, helplessness of his disciples. And we noted there already in verses 14 through 16, the situation they faced was clearly upon, uh, beyond human capacity. A man had a boy who was said to be a lunatic, Now, today, that's not a very politically correct term to be using. But that's the word the Bible uses. Ever thought about what that word means? Well, you've probably heard the word luna, haven't you? The Latin word for moon. And so the original language of this text, the boy is literally called moonstruck. Now, that doesn't mean he was in love. It means that he was stricken with something that was, had driven him to a madness. And what's more, as we clearly see from this passage, the boy's madness was because of a demon who was afflicting him. By the way, and we'll see an issue here, but I just want to mention that some of you may have a copy or may use the New King James Bible. There's a problem here. The New King James uses the word epileptic. He had an epileptic seizure. Well, in my book, there's a lot of difference between epileptic seizures and being a lunatic. But again, be careful on the version of Bible that you use. When we read from other, some of the other gospel accounts, of this story, we see the dreadful condition that this evil spirit had put it, uh, the boy into. Mark, in his gospel, lets us know that the boy was afflicted with deafness and was had an inability to speak. He reports that this evil spirit would seize the boy and throw him to the ground. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like a seizure. But I don't think that we would say anybody that has epilepsy today is Is has got a demon in them. It would cause him to foam at the mouth, gnash his teeth, and become rigid. Luke tells us that the spirit would only depart from the boy with great difficulty and even then would cause him great physical harm in the process. Luke, in his gospel, lets us know that this was a man's only son. And Mark, in his gospel, lets us know these things were happening to the boy from his childhood. And, of course, here from our passage this morning, the man says that the boy uh, would suffer greatly, that he would oft times falleth into the fire and oft, oft into the water. Clearly, not only was the boy suffering, but the father also was suffering. Great anxiety over his precious son. I think he must have been a very good father, because in spite of all the times that the boy fell in the fire or in the water, he was still alive. You can imagine this poor man's sense of helplessness as he tells Jesus, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And of course they couldn't. In and of themselves, merely in their own power and their own authority, they could do nothing. Jesus once sent them out, having given them the authority and the power to do, uh, among other things, casting out demons. We read that back in chapter 10 but His power and authority was not theirs to use on their own initiative. It was His power, His authority, delegated to them. They could only do what they, uh, He had been given them the power to do and the authority to do, and they could never do anything apart from Him. And yet, as Jesus was away from them on the mountain, there they were, trying to do the work of Jesus apart from the enablement of Jesus. They were trying to act as Jesus independent, free agents, and we're, of course, accomplishing nothing. And before we leave this particular point, I need to share something with you that we find in Mark's account of this story, Jesus and His three disciples descended from the mountain. We're told that when He came to His disciples, He saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with Him. And up to this point in the Gospel story, the scribes, that is, the religious professionals and scholars of that day, had been continually contesting with Jesus, opposing His ministry. But now He comes and He finds them questioning and disputing with the nine disciples. And it would be obvious why they were doing so, because the disciples were accomplishing nothing. Their helplessness, their inability to advance the ministry of Jesus in their own power was become the cause of mockery for unbelievers. And they were, I suspect, saying, well, we thought your master was all-powerful. So we thought he had the authority over devils. Well, where is his power now? You certainly don't seem to be accomplishing anything, disciples of Jesus. And it makes me wonder if we aren't sometimes the cause for unbelievers to mock us in the same way and for the same reason. Do they ever watch us trying to do the work of Jesus in this world apart from absolute dependency upon Him? Do they ever see us running ahead of our Lord without regard to His authority? Or his will, trying to do things in his power as if the power were under our own initiative. Do we ever see? Uh, do the, does the world ever see us trying to use Jesus as if he were our own personal tool, instead of submitting to him so that he can use us? Do people in this world ever look at us and say, "Well, get a load of that bunch. They're accomplishing absolutely nothing." Why should I bother with the Jesus they talk about? Why should I listen to those people? Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything for them. I'm afraid they often do say those kind of things because they often do see us trying to do the work of Jesus apart from our reliance upon Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised when they mock us. Jesus has already warned us, without me ye can do nothing. And the world can clearly see that. I trust God will rebuke us for even trying to do the work of Jesus apart from absolute dependency upon him and we bring disrepute to his cause whenever we do so Now I imagine that the disciples along with the fathers The boy's father were very frustrated by this. And again, the frustration will come when we attempt to do God's work in our own power. It's then we need to be corrected in our thinking, in our outlook, as Jesus began to deal with the disciples. And it's here we also see the rebuke of the Lord. Notice verse 17 through 18. Jesus rebukes them with shocking words. And here's where some would want us to believe that the Lord was frustrated with his disciples. To me, again, it's like a perfect, he's a perfect umpire or referee. Ever had one of those perfect umpires? <laughs> perfect referees? I haven't seen one yet. I used to referee basketball, I used to umpire baseball. Hard to believe it. Somebody would yell at me. I just called it like it was. But here is the perfect umpire, the perfect referee, Jesus himself, who's calling it like it is, and like it really is. I don't think he's frustrated. There's no need for instant replay review here, because if there was, we'd see that he didn't get it wrong in the first place. Notice he says, in his rebuke, he says, you have a lack of faith. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. The word generation, which is a general term for the people living in a specific time, in a specific uh, situation, probably refers to the Jewish people as a whole who could actually see Jesus demonstrate His power and authority. But I believe it is also a specific reference to the disciples, since they were the ones that Jesus later rebukes for a lack of faith. It may be that the disciples in Jesus' absence had gotten swept up into the attitude of unbelief that prevailed in the hearts of the multitude around them. And it wasn't, of course, that they doubted that Jesus was the Son of God. Rather, their unbelief was demonstrated in the fact that they thought they didn't need to rely upon Jesus in order to do His work. And He scolded them. He rebuked them for being perverse or distorted turned out of the way. Someone might look upon their situation and thought, well, they actually had great faith. After all, they expected that they could heal the boy, but they had a misplaced faith, a perverted faith. They had embraced a spiritual monstrosity that many people embrace today. That is, faith in faith. If you do not operate on the basis of a personal active dependent faith in the divine person, Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. You cannot have faith in faith, as many people do today. Your faith must be in the God of this Bible, Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary's cross. That's where our faith is in. And so they had a lack of faith, but they also had a contrary faith, I notice Jesus rebukes him in saying, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? It suggests to me that they were acting in a way that was contrary to what they'd already been taught. They were trying to do the work of Jesus apart from him, and they should have known better. After all, hadn't the repeated lesson taught them from the feeding of the multitudes been enough to show them that apart from him they could do nothing. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. He's also a reluctant faith. His rebuke includes telling the disciples to do that which they should have done all along. He says, bring him hither to me. And what they should have done, that's what they should have done in the first place. The Bible tells us that once they did... And Jesus rebuked the devil, he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Not only did Jesus rebuke the disciples, but he rebukes the devil or the evil spirit in the boy. Only Jesus could rightly analyze the boy's condition. Only Jesus could know what to do. Only Jesus had the authority and the power to do it. Only when the boy was brought to him did the helplessness end. And how many problems in life would be solved if we first brought them to Jesus? How many times do we try to solve the problems that we face in our own power? Thinking, well, I'm a Christian. I should be able to do this. The Lord is my Savior. I, I should be able to handle this. We don't pray about it. We don't go to the Lord about it. We don't go to His Word. We just think, I can do this. How many problems in life would have been solved if we'd brought them first to Jesus? How frustrated we are because we're not seeing things happen. Again, I don't think it's frustrating the Lord, but it's certainly not pleasing to Him. There's a lack of faith, a contrary faith, and a reluctant faith. Then notice, third, the cause of the problem. This is in verses 19 through 21. And we are told that when it was all over, they were able to come to him privately and ask him, well, why couldn't we cast him out? Out of all the unwise things they did, this was probably the truly wise thing they did. When we find that we've failed, the best thing is to come to the Lord in prayer and ask, Lord, why did I fail or where did I fail? Where did I go wrong? And I believe when we do that, He will show us. They came to Him. He showed them where they were wrong. He said, because of your unbelief or literally because of little faith. It was not just that their faith itself was small. It's because their faith was small and misplaced. They had faith in their ability to use Jesus' authority and power apart from being dependent upon Him. They had faith that they could do it without Him. Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. Look carefully at what He says here. He says, For verily I say unto you, if ye have a faith as a grain of mustard seed. By the way, that was the smallest seed that the Jewish people of that culture would know about. Truly a little qual- quantity of faith. He says, Ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. If their faith is in the right place, that is, if they have utter confidence in the power and authority of Jesus, and if they operate in utter dependency upon Him, then the quality, quantity of faith is not the issue. We read over in 1 John 5:14 through 15 it says and this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will he heareth us and if we know that he heareth us whatsoever we ask we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And again before we depart this final point look at verse 21. In verse 21 some versions of the Bible have a footnote that indicates this verse is not a part of the original text of Matthew's Gospel, and I believe they're using corrupted texts as their authority. And so again, we need to be careful when Bibles and commentaries say parts of the King James Bible are not supposed to be included. But it says in Mark 9.29 that it is a legitimate part of Mark's telling of the story, so I take it that verse 21 represents something that Jesus truly did say, and it does belong here. How be it, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Doesn't that simply emphasize the point? What is prayer but a matter of turning to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, with utter dependence upon Him. What is fasting but a matter of turning away from the reliance upon ourselves? Doesn't that show us where the disciples failed? Doesn't that reaffirm to us that we are unable to do anything for Jesus apart from utter dependent faith in Jesus? Let me close this message with a story I recently came across. The one who told this story had been a missionary for many years in some of the toughest places in the world. was able to look back with great sense of satisfaction the many years that the Lord had put him in service, but he didn't always feel that way about the ministry. He said that he used to be very frustrated in the Lord's work. You see, again, we get frustrated, but the Lord doesn't. The one who told this story said he used to feel that he was working very hard but was accomplishing nothing in all that he did. And he remembered reading the verse of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15.58 where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And he remembered responding to that verse with bitterness. And he said to himself, oh yeah, well I sure feel like my labor's in vain. And he said then that as he truly truly realized what the verse said, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. The last three words are very important. In the Lord. He said, I've been doing my work for the Lord, but not in the Lord. I've been doing the work, but apart in a relationship of utter dependency upon Him. I've been trying to do it all in my power, not in His power. i had been running ahead of Him and been working apart from Him. And as a result, I was always wondering why He was allowing me to be so frustrated all the time. Once I stopped trying to labor apart from the Lord, he said, I repented of my independent spirit and sought from then on to do my work in the Lord. I no longer found it to be in vain. I found it to be a great joy. I think that's an amazing truth. It's a truth I think we need to get a hold of. How many of us are working for the Lord, but not in the Lord? You say, I just don't seem to be accomplishing much. It all seems to be for naught, in vain. Well, you may be doing it in your own power and not in the utter dependency upon Jesus Christ. Listen, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And He does not want us to do nothing. But rather, He wants us to bear much fruit. And the secret to much fruitfulness in the work of the Lord is given to us I believe, in the passage that we have here before us. It all changes when we obey His call to completely depend on Christ. Let's pray.